What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, at the end of Exodus 33, Moses asked God to show him his glory, and uh, God responds by doing two wonderful things to demonstrate the glory of himself to Moses. First, God places Moses in the cleft of a rock and, and puts his hand over Moses, and then uh, he just uh, his glory kind of passes by, and he removes his hand, and, and Moses is able to have this experience of the glory of God, so this kind of experience that he sees, but God also, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 34, reveals his glory in a more practical way. Uh, he shares seven characteristics about himself that demonstrate the glory that he possesses. Possesses. Uh, and we looked at that last week, a great thing to remind ourselves about. Uh, first, he is merciful and full of compassion. Second, he is gracious and gives his favor to those who don't deserve it or earn it. Third, he's long-suffering, slow to anger and patient. Fourth, he's abounding in goodness. Fifth, he's abounding in truth, trustworthiness, uh, faithfulness, reliability. Sixth, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And seventh, he is just and must punish sin. And so Moses, he comes to God, God, show me your glory. And God says, you know what? I'm going to do that in two great ways. You're going to have this experience where you're going to see my glory, but you're also going to have me reveal to you why I'm so glorious. I'm going to share these characteristics about myself that declare why I have such glory. And now as we come to the second chapter, uh, second half of Exodus 34, we're going to see how the glory of God impacted Moses personally. And so Moses has been blessed to see the glory, to hear about the glory, and now we're going to see, you know, how he it's impacted personally by the glory of God. Um, and, you know, we, we've looked at in these last two weeks kind of this, this great example from Moses' life of the fact that we should be seeking the glory of God. We should be seeking to experience it. We should be seeking to know it more. And now, hopefully, as we look at what Moses experiences and what Moses gains from this time with seeing the glory of God, knowing the glory of God, my hope is that we would just be spurred on even more to seek to know it, to seek to experience God's glory in even deeper ways because of the fact of what we see here that God does in the life of Moses through it. Now, before we look at this uh, wonderful way in which Moses you know, is blessed by this experience uh, through the glory, uh, by the glory of God, we got to look at something else that God's going to share because God is going to reiterate the covenant that he makes with the nation of Israel. Now, if you remember last week, one of the things that Moses does in response to the glory that he sees is he worships. You know, right away, Lord, because of who you are, because of what you've declared, I'm now going to worship you. And then right after he worships, we see him do the second thing, which is that he prays a prayer based on the glorious character that God has revealed. 
Well, God, since you're gracious, let me ask for your grace. God, since you're forgiving, let me ask that you forgive our iniquity and sins. God, since you, you know, say these different things about yourself, he asked God to demonstrate this. He wants them to go with the Israelites to pardon their sin, to, to take them as his inheritance. And so, God, I want you know, to kind of act upon what you've just declared about your mercy and your goodness and your forgiveness. And I ask that you would extend those things to us. Well, now we're going to see that God is going to respond to this prayer of Moses by renewing the covenant that he made with Israel before they worship the golden calf. And imagine how important this would be because, you know, hey, right before Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days, remember the last thing that Israel says, God declares his covenant with them. He tells them what he expects of them, what they have to do. And then he says, if you keep this, Here's all the blessings, and he gives this whole list of what I'm going to do for you if you fulfill your end of the covenant. And they say, well, wonderful, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. So that's how it ends. Moses goes up the mountain with them having declared, we're going to do everything on our end, Lord, to be obedient and do what you've asked us. And only in a matter of probably about 20 or 30 days, they're breaking that covenant by worshiping the golden calf. Okay, so now on their mindset, it's like, well, God made this covenant, and he promised us based on our response to this covenant, and we've already blown it. We've already failed on our end, and so is the covenant done? Are these promises over? You know, is all that God said he would do now completely null and void because of our sin in worshiping this golden calf? And so they would be kind of wondering that. And so the fact that God now reiterates his covenant with the nation of Israel, basically saying, I'm giving you guys another chance. The covenant is still... Uh, happening and I'm moving forward with it and all the promises that go with it, this would have been very important for the Israelites to understand. But one thing that's interesting here is, if you remember, we went through the details of this covenant and it's a lot, a lot that God says that they need to do, a lot of details within it. And you'll notice that when God renews this, he doesn't go into repeating every detail that he shared in the initial covenant. He already knows that they know that. So he emphasizes some things that are quite interesting because I think the reason he emphasizes really two main things in what he reiterates is because he wants them to know, if you guys want to keep this, you know, last time you didn't, last time you failed miserably, here's the stuff that I want to emphasize because if you do these two things, it's going to help you to actually fulfill your end. You've already failed because you didn't do these things, and so I'm going to emphasize these things to kind of help you with the covenant aspect that you are meant to keep. And so if you remember last week, we looked at the very beginning of this covenant in verses 10 and 11, and it just basically reveals, you know, what God is going to do. He reminds them just kind of a, a basic, broad, you know, he doesn't get into all the details of all the promises that he wants, that he shared in detail before, but he just says, you know, I'm going to do marvels such as not have been done in all the earth. I'm going to do an awesome thing with you. He just kind of leaves it at that. This is going to be so amazing. I just want you to remember how amazing and awesome it's going to be. I don't need to get into all the details with you. Uh, and I'm also going to drive out everybody in the promised land uh, so that you guys can live there. Now we come to the first main thing that God is going to emphasize. All right, if you guys want to keep your end of the bargain, if you guys want to do the covenant that I've called you to do, here's the first thing that you really need to do. And that's what we're going to pick up tonight in verses 12 through 17 of Exodus 34. It says this. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. Lest it be a snare in your midst. 
But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves." God knows that the nation of Israel is going to be heading into the promised land that he's going to give them, but the promised land isn't empty, isn't just this place where there's no one dwelling there. There are plenty of people dwelling there, and God has already said, I'm going to remove those people, but it's not going to be all at once. But the people that are living there are ungodly pagans. These are people that don't worship God. They worship false gods. They have this you know, ungodly lifestyle. And so God says, when you get to the promised land and you encounter these people who do not worship me, the true God, they worship false gods and they live an ungodly life, you know, there are certain things that I want you to do. First, I want you to destroy their altars. I want you to break their sacred pillars. I want you to cut down their wooden images. So, so all the altars and the images and their false gods that they have as these things that they worship, when you get in there, first thing I want you to do is I want you to destroy all of that. And then I want you to do that. Why? Because I don't want you to fall into worshiping these gods. I don't want you to practice what these people before you practice it. I don't want you to come in there and leave those up and then have some of you going, hey, you know, maybe we should worship this one. You know, we already recognize they're susceptible to this. They just worshiped a golden calf. And so we don't need, you know, some, you know, wooden image of some bird or something that they're going to bow down to. So God says, just destroy it all when you get in there. But he also says, don't make any covenants with these ungodly people to take their daughters or sons and marry them. Why? Because if you marry into that relationship with these ungodly people, the likelihood is you're going to have these women who your sons marry, and then they're going to encourage them. Hey, you know what? We worship this other God. Why don't we do this together? And now all of a sudden you have these relationships where you have one group worshiping the true God, one group worshiping false gods, and ultimately you get both groups ending up worshiping false gods. So here God is giving Israel the first practical thing they need to do in order to help them keep their side of the covenant. And what they need to do is remove the bad influences that would cause them to worship false gods in sin. To remove the bad influences that would cause them to worship false gods and sin. So they need to destroy anything that would cause them or tempt them to engage in a worship of something that is not the true God. They need to stay away from any people or any relationships that would hinder or cause them or tempt them to worship anything other than the true God. Now, you know, we look at this and we say, hey, this was great for them. But you know what? This is good for us as well. There's a great practical lesson for us in our relationship with God because the reality is, you know, even though we follow Jesus, we are tempted by this world on a regular basis with false gods. And we might not be tempted with the false god of Baal like we see in the Bible or, or certain things where we're like, well, I'm tempted to, to bow down to this wooden statue and, and, and you know, pay homage to it. But, you know, we have plenty of false gods that we are tempted by. We have the false god of money. We have the false god of power. We have the false god of pleasure. Hey, probably the biggest false god of all in our culture is me, myself. You know, we love to worship ourselves. And so, you know, we have plenty of things that are are gods that we worship in place of the true God. And so this is a really important thing, practical thing for us to do to protect ourselves. 
If you say, you know what, I don't want to worship the things that this world is pushing forward as gods that I should worship, so what can I do to protect myself from that? Well, let's do what God tells the Israelites to do. Remove any influence that would encourage you to worship something that's not true. Remove any influence that would encourage you to worship you know, one of the things that I mentioned or other things that this world puts in our way. Because you know what, when you have ungodly influences in your life, when you allow them to stay there, and this is the reality where you know, people, they're, they're living for the world, you know, they're not Christians, they have all these influences in their life that are leading them to worship false things, and then all of a sudden they get saved. And one of the, the things that they do is they just kind of allow a lot of these influences that at that point in time, they're not strong enough to overcome. So there's people and influences that are kind of drawing them back to worshiping false things. And this is where this has got to be the wisdom to say, you know what, i got to remove some of this stuff. i got to get away from some of these people and the influence they have. Because if, if I don't, the temptation that they're bringing into my life is going to cause me to continue to do sinful things that I know God doesn't want me to do. So if you want success in your relationship with God, you need to pay attention to the things that are influencing your life. You know, a person that is driving you know, a vehicle drunk, we say that they're driving under the influence, under the influence of alcohol. And we got to be very careful because you know, we have things that influence us, and there are influences that are quite harmful for us, and then there are influences that are beneficial to us, and we got to make sure that we're very careful with what we allow into our life uh, and be very careful what we don't. Jesus says something pretty uh, extreme in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, Jesus' point wasn't, you know, everybody should be cutting out their eyes and cutting off their hands because, you know, if the reality is our eye causes a sin and our hand causes a sin, well, guess what? We'd have a bunch of blind, handless Christians because all of us are in this place. And so that's not what Jesus is saying. He's making extreme statements to say, you know what? You should do whatever is necessary to remove the influences in your life that are negative and causing you to sin. You know, whatever it takes, you know, get rid of that so that you're not continuing in those things. Because far better for you to, to remove that from your life and do what's right and have the benefit of that than to keep it in your life and do what's wrong and have the consequence of that. So God is telling the Israelites, when I give you the promised land, you got to make sure you remove all the bad influences that would cause you to worship other gods, destroy all the, the idols that are there, the false gods that are there, stay away from relationships that would tempt you to worship other gods. And he ends it with, you yourselves don't make any molded gods. You've already shown you are, you are a problem. It's not just the people that are going to be the problem. You guys, without any of the influence of the pagans in the promised land, made your own golden calf. Uh, and so you guys have your own issues. So don't go and redo what you did before and make another golden calf. And so the, the first main thing that God challenges the Israelites to do is to help them keep uh, their side of the covenant is really you got to remove these things. Well, now we're going to see the second main thing that God challenges them to do in verses 18 through 27. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I command you, in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. 
And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks, of first fruit of weeks, the harvest, and the feast of ingatherings at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. The first of first fruits of your land shall, you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So here we have God reminding the nation of Israel, really mainly of three main feasts and a Sabbath. And remember, we went into all these things in detail, every feast, what they're supposed to do, why they're supposed to do it. So I'm not going to get into all those details again. If you forgot that, you can go back and listen to the messages before. But the three main feasts that was required of every male to go to, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also the Feast of Passover, uh, the Feast of Weeks, which is another term is Pentecost, and then the Feast of Ingatherings or Tabernacles, which we actually looked at on Sunday. So these are the three main feasts that happen you know, without, throughout the year uh, that everyone was meant to go to. Uh, and then God shares some specific things about how to keep these feasts, and he also reminds them about keeping the Sabbath, which was you know, a weekly thing. Now, the thing that I want you to note is you know, we, we look at all these things together. They all have something in common, and the thing they have in common is time with God. You see, the purpose of these feasts, the purpose of the Sabbath, the purpose of all of this really was, you know what, I want you guys to just set aside time for me. You know, you got your busy lives and you got the things that you're doing, and I want you at least three times a year to stop and to come to the temple. And I want you to worship me there. I want you to sacrifice and repent of your sins there. I want you to remember what I've done for you there. I want there to be a time where you take time with me that I'm the focus, that we have some time together of remembering what I've done for you, of who I am, of worship for who I am and what I've done, of repentance of your sins. I want all these things to take place. And then the Sabbath was a similar thing. I want it to be a day of rest, but also a day where you take time for me. And so God is establishing this of, hey, you know what? This is essential. If you want to have your part of the bargain, your part of the covenant done, you're going to have to remove the negative influences, but there's also another thing that you're going to need to do, and that's what we see here. The second practical thing to help them was they need to spend time with God on a regular basis. they got to spend time with God, spend time remembering what God has done, spend time worshiping God, spend time repenting of their sin and getting right with God, spend time in the Word of God and, and learning and applying those things to their life. This was something that was so important for them if they were going to do what God has commanded them to do. Not only remove the negative influences, but make sure the most important influence there is is one you spend time with, and that's God. Because you can say, you know what, I'm not going to have any negative influences in my life. Well, that's one step, but if you don't take the positive step of saying, well, now I'm going to allow the influence of God, I'm going to spend time regularly with him, then you kind of missed that side of it, and you're still going to have trouble because you're not allowing God's influence to impact your life and change your life. And this is another thing that's very important for us to do in our relationship with the Lord, spend regular time with him. 
Time remembering what He's done for us, remembering who He is, remembering His promises, time worshiping Him for who He is, time just focusing and repenting on the sins that we've done and allowing Him to forgive us and help us move forward, time in His Word, studying it and learning from it and applying it to our lives. And so as God reiterates His covenant with the nation of Israel, notice that He just emphasizes these two things. I mean, the covenant was really long, and He doesn't really get into a lot of the details. It's kind of this first focus of, you know what, you got to get rid of negative influences. And the second thing is, make sure you spend time with me. These are the two big things that God wants them to remember moving forward so that they'll be much more effective in keeping their side of the covenant, which they've already failed in doing. Well, now we're going to look at how God's glory impacts Moses' life. And something we're going to see here that's quite interesting is because we kind of think of, well, the glory of God, it must have been like this great spiritual impact. But actually, it's going to have a physical impact on Moses. Literally, two physical things happen to Moses because of being in the glory of God. And as we look at these things, you know, we're going to see that, you know, it brings out some realities for us of like, you know, when I spend time in the glory of God, there are benefits that come to my life. And so the first way that God's glory impacted Moses is in verse 28, and it says this. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So now Moses goes back up the mountain. Remember he was up the mountain for 40 days before. While he's up there, the Israelites are worshiping a golden calf. He comes down, he breaks the tablets. Well, he goes back up again. And he's up again for 40 more days and 40 more nights. And we're told something quite miraculous happens with Moses' physical body. And notice what we're told. Something that he didn't do. He neither ate bread nor drank water for the entire 40 days. Now, this is a complete miracle. You know, it is possible, even though it would be quite difficult and hard, you know, Jesus did it. There are people today who have done it. Uh, not everybody could do it, but it's possible to go 40 days without food. It's possible to fast. As long as you're drinking water, you can go 40 days and survive without food. You're going to lose a lot of weight. It's going to be very difficult. But if you're healthy when you start, you know, that's something that is possible. It doesn't have to necessarily be miraculous. But you know what? You can't go that long without water. You try to go 40 days without water, you're dead. You know, you're not even going to make it a week. You know, water is a necessity that you cannot go that long without it. Uh, and so the fact that Moses is able to go 40 days and 40 nights without food or water shows something that is miraculous that God is doing in sustaining Moses' physical body. That Moses is just there in God's presence, and the whole time he doesn't feed his body any food or any drink, and he's fine. He's doing well because of something that the Lord is doing miraculously. This isn't you know, some normal thing. Most people, anytime they would try to do that, would be dead. Now, something else interesting to note is that while Moses was in the presence of God's glory, notice he's not feeding his flesh. And this is something I want us to kind of note here is you know, he, he's in the presence of the glory of God, and while he's in the presence of the glory of God, 
He's not even needing, nor is he giving into these, you know, these are natural desires of his flesh. I mean, these aren't even like sinful things, but, you know, food and water, that's a, a normal desire your flesh would want. But he doesn't have to, to give into it while he's in the glory of God. And I like that reality because, you know what, I found so often that when we spend time in the glory of God, one of our struggles is the struggle of our flesh. And I'm not talking about you know, the desire for food or water, or maybe for some of us the desire for food is something that we need to work on. But you know, I'm talking about sinful things that you know, we struggle with. Our flesh desires that, and there's this battle. You know, the Bible tells us about this battle in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. I mean, here the Bible reveals an issue that each one of us have. We have this battle going on. We have the spirit inside of us, the Holy Spirit that we receive and we accept Christ, and guess what? He desires godly things. He is encouraging us to do godly things, but we also have our flesh, and the flesh doesn't want godly things. It wants sinful things, and so there's this battle. We're kind of being pulled, you know, both ways. And, you know, we often fail in that battle. We often give in to the flesh instead of to the spirits. We often struggle to do what's right, and instead we do what's wrong. But I have found that, you know what, when you take time to spend in God's presence, in His glory, you walk away from that time with just a greater ability to resist the flesh. You know, and we just see this in a practical way with Moses, of like, he went 40 days without having to eat or drink, and I'm not saying that you're going to you know, have that reality. I'm talking about more of a, you know, a sinful flesh that, you know what, you spend time in God's presence. It helps you. It enables you. It gives you the power to overcome those fleshly desires that are in us. And I think another way to look at it is, you know what, what you feed is what's going to be strong. So at the end of the day, if I'm feeding my flesh constantly and I'm not feeding my spirit and I'm wondering why is it that I keep giving into the flesh and I don't give into the spirit, why is it because I'm making the flesh strong? The more I feed it, the more strength it has in my life. But the opposite's also true. The more I feed the spirit, the more the strength of the spirit has in my life. The more I starve my flesh, the weaker it gets. And so I think this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why the Bible speaks about why we should fast. It's great to starve your flesh and feed your spirits so that we can have greater strength to give in to the things of God and resist the things of this world. So the first way that God's glory impacts Moses is really through this miracle of he's up there and he's not eating, he's not drinking for 40 days and 40 nights. And the second way that God's glory impacts Moses is another physical thing that's quite you know, miraculous as well. Notice what we see in verses 29 through 32. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hands when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. So Moses comes down from the 40 days and 40 nights being in the glory, the presence of God. 
And he comes down and he sees the Israelites and he's probably thinking, oh man, it's been 40 days. These guys are going to be so happy to see me. And I'm happy to see there's no golden calf here. We're on a good start. And he goes to approach them and people are afraid of him. And they're, they're getting away from him. But he's unaware of why. And we're told the thing that happened to him as he was up there on the mountain was another miraculous thing. Literally, the skin of his face shone like he was glowing. And so he comes down and people see this and they're just, you know, they're freaked out. You know, they don't know what to do with this. You know, here's this, you know, glowing face of Moses, you know, which is not a natural thing that you see on a human. And they recognize you just came from that time with God and now you're literally glowing in front of us. And they got fearful and they, they stayed away from him. But notice this. As Moses spends time with the glory of God, we have a direct impact to his body again. And so the second way that God's glory impacted Moses is it caused Moses' face to shine for all the Israelites to see. As Moses comes down, there's no doubt where he's been. You know, if someone just showed up, you know, they hadn't seen anything up to this point, and it's like, here comes Moses down from the mountain, his face alone would have made it evident of he just was in the presence of God. I mean, whose face shines? I mean, this guy's he's glowing, and, and they, they, they recognize, wow, you literally physically have something coming from you because of being in the glory of God. And I want you to note here that this wasn't Moses' glory. This was a reflection of the glory of God, kind of like the moon. You know, you look at the moon, and you think, wow, it's so bright and nice, but, you know, there's no light on the moon. It's just reflecting the light of the sun. You know, that's the same thing. Moses' face, it was just reflecting because he spent 40 days in the glory of God, and now there's like, wow, that glory has reflected onto me that other people can now see it. And so you're really just seeing God's glory kind of shining through Moses' face. And this is another thing that I want you to recognize. When you spend time in the presence of God's glory, you know what? It affects you. And I will even say this. It can physically affect you to the point where people can see it. Not that you're glowing in the dark, not that your face is shining like that, but you know what? When you watch people who have been in God's presence, you can see things on their face. You can see a peace in their face. You, you can see a joy on their face. You know, I think this is especially you know, evident when someone's going through horrific trials and you would think, what I should see on your face is anger. Or what I should see on your face is, is, is hatred or sadness or depending on what they're going through, what you would kind of expect to see based off of, you know, how people normally respond and their face normally looks. You know, maybe you should be downcast and just saddened or whatever. But all of a sudden you see this person and their face is full of peace. You know, like, how in the world is that possible with what you're going through? Or their face is full of joy, and you think again, how is that possible with what you're going through? Or full of just love and goodness? Well, what's happening here? You are reflecting God's Spirit. It's coming through, not this, you know, like a flashlight shining through your face, but, you know, your expression. There is a countenance that you have that is just God shining through that people can see. And I see it all the time on people where you just recognize, you know, I see it with people, you know, even close to death. And you're just like, man, I can just see how your peace right now in the midst of the fact that you're going to die, just, man, the countenance of the Lord is shining through you. And it's something that when you spend time with the Lord, spend time in his glory, this is just something 
that transpires. And it's a wonderful thing because it's not for us. You know, notice Moses doesn't even know what's happening. He comes down, he's totally unaware. People are freaking out and he's like, what? You know, he doesn't know that he's got this shiny face. But I think, you know, in the same way, we go through things and people are blown away and they look at our face and they probably will even say stuff like, man, how is it that you have peace right now? How do you know I got peace? Well, I just look at you and you're not just freaking out like I would be. And I just see like, you know, this, this look of peace or, or how are you in just joyful right now? You know, there's a recognition that's so important for people to see, you know, and, you know, that it's not fake. You know, because sometimes we try to put on a show. Sometimes we try to pretend we're something we're not or we're spiritual and we're not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about true, real, because we've been with Jesus. We're reflecting his glory and then people just see it. It's apparent, even physically, coming through our lives. And I think that's just a great testimony and a wonderful thing that, you know, Moses was able to have this for the nation of Israel. First, they're afraid, you know, and then, you know, I'm sure once they realize what it was, it's kind of like, wow, this is pretty cool. Look at Moses, man. You're shining because you've been with Jesus. And then finally, he calls him to himself, and he's there. Remember, he's the mediator. His job is to go speak with God for the nation and then speak to the nation for God. And so he's been up there for 40 days. God has given him all this stuff to share. And he comes back with the two tablets that he hasn't broken this time. And he tells them, hey, this is the now. Remember the covenant? We're renewing it with the Lord. This is what he's asking. This is what he's requiring of you. And so he shares this with them. But now we see something very interesting at the end of this chapter here concerning his shining face. Notice what we're told here in verses 33 through 35. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him." So whenever Moses is now with the people, he puts this veil kind of covering his shining face. But when he goes to speak with the Lord, he removes the veil and it's just, you know, there's nothing that he's trying to cover before God. And he kind of just has this pattern. When people see him, he's got the veil on. When God sees him, he removes the veil. And now when you just first read that, you know, maybe the natural conclusion that you might come to is, well, okay, Moses put on this veil because people were afraid of him when he first came down the mountain. And he's thinking, okay, I'm going to cover this glowing face. It's a little bit hard for people to look at. I'll put a veil for their sake so that they don't have to see my glowing face. You know, that might be a natural thought that we would come to. Uh, and if you didn't have any more of scripture, that's probably the conclusion that you would come to. But uh, it wasn't actually to protect the nation of Israel from seeing the face of Moses, Paul explains the purpose of this veil in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so notice why Moses actually places this veil and what its purpose is. We're told this. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so Paul's kind of contrasting the old covenant through Moses versus the new covenant through Jesus. And so he's talking about the ministry of death, old covenant written and engraved on stone, the Ten Commandments. If that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, 
what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So here Paul is contrasting, and it's a wonderful contrast of the, the glorious state of the new covenant versus the old covenant. He's saying, you know, the old covenant had glory, but what we have in Jesus is much greater. And he's saying, hey, you know, look at what Moses did, but notice what Paul tells us, the reason why Moses covered his face with a veil it's not so that you know, they wouldn't be scared to look at him anymore. It was actually to cover the fact that the glory was fading. See, the reality was the shine was starting to dim, kind of like a flashlight that's batteries are dying. You know, it's starting to dim, and he was covering the fact that the glory is fading. He was keeping them from seeing that. It was something that was coming to an end, something that was passing away. And the reason that Paul shares this, which I think is a great kind of connection for us today, is, man, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is more glorious. To realize what we have in Jesus far exceeds what they had with Moses. Because anything that Moses had was still a fading glory. But Jesus' glory doesn't fade. That's something that is continuous. Something that's amazing. Something that we have access to at all time. Something that we can come into the presence of God and the glory of God can influence and impact our life in wonderful ways. Even as we look at the fact that it can impact our appearance and our face because of what God is able to do to give us His peace and His joy and His love. So in these verses, we see several challenging things. We see the challenge of what God gives in this reiteration of the covenant, saying, hey, there's two specific things, two main things that I want you guys to be focused on so that you can do what I've called you to do. First, they need to remove the bad influences that would cause them to worship false gods and sin. Second, they need to spend time with God on a regular basis. And once again, this is a huge for us. Removing those bad influences, spending time with God, spending time in His presence with His glory. And then we also see how the glory impacts Moses. First, it enabled Moses to give, not to give in to his fleshly desires. And second, it caused Moses' face to shine for all the Israelites to see. And this is what we see, man. We spend time with Jesus and we're victorious over our flesh, over these desires that we have. We don't spend time with Jesus Typically, the opposite is the reality. We give in to the flesh. We fail in that battle. We struggle greatly because that time with Jesus, the time in His glory, the time in His Word, you know, these are necessary, necessary things on a daily basis for us to be victorious in this battle. And you know what? When we do take that time, it has an impact on us. It definitely has a huge spiritual impact that we didn't even talk about tonight, and we could have spent a huge amount of time of what it does spiritually, but even physically, you know, it does something to us that others can see. You know, and it's a great testimony of the power of God and the time that we have with God and what He can do in our lives if we'll just take time to spend with Him in His glory to help us overcome our struggles, our flesh, and it's help people see the power of God in our lives. So any thoughts?